It is said that one man's junk is another man's treasure. But what if, for at least some Americans, they are one in the same? When people can't let go of possessions that they no longer need, they live in a type of physical and psychological bondage. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my left, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Americans put out about 250 million tons of trash for collection each year. Most people are glad to get rid of it, while a minority of other persons find themselves returning to the trash bin to retrieve items they cannot bear to discard. Shel Silverstein famously made light of this aberration in a familiar child's poem. Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. She'd scour the pots and scrape the pans, candy the yams and spice the hams, and though her daddy would scream and shout, she simply would not take the garbage out. And so it piled up to the ceilings. Coffee grounds and potato peelings. Brown bananas, rotten peas, chunks of sour cottage cheese. It filled the can, it covered the floor, it cracked the window, it blocked the door with bacon rinds and chicken bones, drippy ends of ice cream cones, prune pits, peach pits, orange peel, gloppy glumps of cold oatmeal and pizza crusts and withered greens and soggy beans and tangerines and crusts of blackburn butter toast and grizzly bits of beefy roasts. At last, the garbage reached so high that finally it touched the sky and all the neighbors moved away and none of her friends had come to play and finally Sarah Cynthia Stout said okay I'll take the garbage out children remember Sarah Stout and always take the garbage out I am delighted to have on Watching America Matt Paxton. He is a familiar name and a familiar figure to many of you, particularly those of you who have may have watched episodes of A&E's Hoarders. But he is more than that. He's now currently working on a new show called Legacy List, which is a very helpful program, as a matter of fact, looking at how people, older people, can find things that are significant in their lives and also curtail, well, things that perhaps are not needed quite as much as they used to be. Something which I might add, it by expansion, applies to, I think, most of us on this planet. Matt Paxton, let me ask you, how did you get involved with the whole issue of hoarding in the first place? Man, 20 years ago, uh, I was 24 years old, and my dad, my stepdad, and both my grandfathers died in the same year. 
And I had four houses to clean out. Bad, just bad luck, bad timing. And I was a kid. I was 24, and I was going through the grief, and I was going through the stuff. And it really sucked. Like, I was just miserable and sad. And my grandpa always told me, if something's really awful, do it for a job. People pay you to do it. And, uh, And he was right. I've been doing it for 20 years. (laughs) <laughs> been cleaning wow. out people's attics ever so and the hoarding side just came i had you know we all had a great aunt or a grandma someone that hoarded and back then we just called them pack rats That's and true. it yes. was it was my job as the great nephew to clean her house every summer and because i could handle her verbally the best and i didn't get angry and so i was cleaning hoarded houses when i was a kid i just didn't know it i was doing it for like two dollars to help my aunt because it was my family, you know, it was just an obligation for the family. And then uh, when I got into cleaning houses, I realized nobody wanted to do those. And so I just kind of went with that. Well, if nobody wants to do it, that's where I'm going to go from, as an entrepreneur. And it took me 10, you know, probably 10 months of doing it before I realized my hoarders were, were grieving just like I was. Mm. But they were grieving about something different. And so I didn't really get the spiritual connection of the grief and the loss until I've been cleaning houses for almost two years. We have uh, spoken with, and will be speaking to, um, a lady called Elizabeth Nelson. She is the uh, leader of an organization called Children of Hoarders. And she spoke about the generational effects. For instance, uh, one's parents may be hoarders or grandparents if somebody lives with them. And there's an element of of shame, and uh, it it carries on to other family members. And she spoke very, very earnestly and honestly about the severe suffering that she went through, she and her siblings, because you can't touch in some households an item without people feeling not only they're losing that item, but perhaps are losing their world. What has been your approach when going into a home when you have the resident there? And they still want you, on one hand, they say they want you to clear up things. And on the other hand, every single thing you touch from the most useless ashtray to um, a book of matches, if you begin to move, it disturbs them. How do you work around that? All right. So the first thing, first of all, Elizabeth's wonderful. I know her and her organization, uh, Children of Hoarders, is probably the premier uh, information supplier on hoarding, I think. Mm. Uh, and they are the most forgotten group. Hoarder, even, I mean, I'm on a TV show. Yes. celebrating somebody with a mental disorder that has actually harmed their children's lives. And the children are the ones that get forgotten the most. For me, when I walk into a hoarder's home, my job, number one, is to know there's always a reason. No matter how illogical the behavior is, like for you and I, you mentioned a, a really irrational ashtray. Mm-hmm. That's your and I's definition. Mm. To my hoarder, it might be totally rational. That, that, that ashtray might be Liberace's ashtray. And he gave it to Elvis, and she loves Elvis because her father loved Elvis, and her father died. Right. That's a really big leap. I understand that. But what I'm saying is there's always a reason, and there's always trauma. I've been doing this 20 years, probably cleaned 5,000 houses, and every single house, something bad has happened to the hoarder, and their brain is looking for happiness and self-worth in this stuff. We all look different places for happiness and self-worth. A hoarder's brain looks for it in stuff. Believe it or not, when I go in to clean a house, I actually mm-hmm. don't clean. I hang out and get to know them first. Because wow. so, I got to understand that trauma. Yes. I got to understand what's going on. I'm not a therapist. Right. I'm not a psychologist. But I am a person, right? And I can be compassionate. And a hoarder, um, it's probably the most visual disorder. Like, I mean, think of the worst thing about me or you. We can probably hide that secret. 
but a hoarder can't hide it because it's so big and visual. And so they're already, there's a predisposed like judgment of them. And then they're a little bit uh, pushed back and angry and scared. And so there's a higher level of anxiety when I walk in too because of this disorder. And so my whole thing is disarm it, hang it, hang back. Like I'll, I mean, I have a whole thing I do, how to get into the house and talk to them. And I actually will invite them outside. Maybe we'll go get coffee first. We actually will get to know each other outside of the hoarding environment first because I want to know who they actually are as a person, not who they are as a hoarder. The hoarding is temporary. It might be 10 years, might be 20 years, might be 30 years, but they didn't, they didn't come out of the womb a hoarder. They came out of the womb a person. So I want to know who the person is before I get to really tackle their disorder. That's, that sounds really cheesy, but I promise you that's the most No, it doesn't. Way it, 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 what it sounds to me, Matt, is respectful and sensitive and extremely intelligent. This is the part you don't know about me. I okay. was an addictive gambler growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I lost everything when I was 25 to gambling and had to, a bookie beat me up and I had to come up with $40,000 and it was tragic and it was awful. And I was a really bad person. I was at a really low point. And that's where you learn compassion. Yes. You don't learn compassion when everything's great. You learn it when everything is horrible. Right. Well, that's so refreshing because I mean, that is the essence of it. I mean, the, the true empathy is recognizing ourselves in virtually everyone else. And um, without bringing the judgment to it. I mean, one can assess that this is probably not healthy, but at the same time, understanding that people do things that are not healthy. And there is within it, as you say, a seeming exterior illogic, but within the realm, there is in their own minds and our minds, I'll include myself, there is a logic. When you try and help them, are there times when it seems like two steps forward, one back? Yes, yes, yes. Like 99 out of 100 times, that's what happens. Like you'll clean the house and you're like, oh, we did great. She's going to get her life back together. And then you get back the next morning and everything you you and six guys threw in the dumpster, she somehow moved it back herself. And it's all back in the house. Or she'll go to the store and buy stuff. I mean, it's a disease and you have to remember that. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. But there must be um, some kind of schism in the mind for many uh, persons who fit into the category of being hoarders because there is a recognized shame. One of the things that you, we've both alluded to, Elizabeth Nelson, is she said this whole idea of uh, a definite rule, no one can open the door, no one can be let in. Uh, and that is shameful behavior. So even though these persons do not want to part with anything, they're in pain, most of them, are they not? Or do you have some people who are just oblivious to it and, and uh, well, are indifferent? Well, no, they know. They know. They're very smart. So it's really important to understand hoarders are incredibly intelligent. And uh, we don't have really data to prove it, but I, I guarantee you their IQs are higher. I mean, every their job, the, the thousands of fans I've helped, I mean, they always have these really amazing jobs at one point that were very smart. A lot of them were caregivers, nurses. The top three careers are nurses, teachers, and social workers. And we found they were either really caregiving or very, you know, caregivers very loving, or they were very super intelligent. Uh, is part of the, the the reason for hoarding and holding on to the past because these persons are afraid of the present or the future? Yes, the past. We call it the perfect past or the fake future. Right? Ah. But what it's not, what it's not, is right now because right now is horrible. And so to take that even further. The shame and the embarrassment is still better. Even the isolation is still better than the pain. That's how traumatic hoarding is. I had a lady that um, 
she's a pretty bad hoarder. And she lost her husband and her son in uh, New Orleans during Katrina. Mm-hmm. They were in the attic. They were The water was rising. They were in the attic. She was holding on. Her husband was pulling her son up to the rafters. Well, the water rose too fast and swept him away. She literally watched her son and her husband get washed away in the storm. And this was 10 years later when I was helping her. And she said, Matt, the real hard thing is, she goes, I don't know if they died or if they made it and they've chosen not to find me. Wow. That's trauma. That's trauma. That's what causes hoarding. Not because... You know, yarn is on sale. <laughs> it's right. the it's the trauma, it's the loss, and that the the piles are a wall for a reason, right? Because they're safe. I mean, they can hide behind them. Now that crosses over into hoarding. Well, let's talk about your new thing, which is the the legacy list. I'm really attracted to that idea, um, and and you haven't disappeared from from the screens. I mean, fairly recently you were with, with Jimmy Kimmel live, and uh, yeah. you helped him clean his <laughs> yeah. office. What what inspired that, and um, and what are your intentions with it? Yeah, so five years ago, I realized um, a lot of my clients were calling me saying, "Hey, I'm not a hoarder, but," and what it was was it was just. They're downsizing families. They were families that had been in a house 50, 60 years, and they had a lot of stuff. These are the last kids of the Depression. These are grandparents that have lived in a home. If you've lived in a home 60 years, you're going to accumulate some stuff. Like, that's going to happen. And that's what was happening. And they said, we're not hoarders. We just need help going through the stuff because mom's moving to senior living. And so I real after about a year of that, I said, gosh, i got to focus part of my business on that because I'm doing more. I was actually at one point doing more downsizing. And senior, they call it senior move management, which means um, helping people clean up their house and then moving them to senior living, whatever mm-hmm. that may be, whether mm-hmm. whether it's a senior living community or it's uh, uh, you're just downsizing to uh, live with your grandkids or something, you know. But the issue was people had a lot of stuff and they didn't do with it. And so I, I said, all right, this is still a, it's not hoarding, but it's still a part of like stuff management. Our memories are attached to this stuff, and we have emotions. And so it's really the same thing, same tools, same techniques. And so we started focusing on that about five years ago. And what I found was every family would say to me, hey, there's these two or three items we can't find in the house. They're somewhere here. Something small, but it was really important to them. Mm-hmm. And again, there wasn't hoarding going on. It was just, it was a needle in a haystack. And so we always call that the legacy list. It'd be two or three items. I love stories, man. I love the stories these people tell me. I just love them. Every single family I've met, and downsizing or hoarding, they have good stories. But the downsizing families, they have amazing stories. Like I found a picture the other day in a lady's house. The lady standing next to me in the house when I found this picture, she's 80 years old. But the picture's of her when she's like 20. And she's smoking a cigarette. She's yes. beautiful. She's got a very short skirt on. Mm-hmm. And there's a very handsome Spanish guy named Fernando standing next to her. Wow. And the granddaughter goes, who's that? That's not grandpa. <laughs> and she goes, oh, that's Fernando. And she says it in a very funny voice. And she's like, well, who's Fernando? <laughs> and, and the granddaughter wants to know. And she goes, oh, he was my lover. She goes, I was a, <laughs> I was, I was a, uh, a professor at MIT, and he was a Spanish professor at MIT. And we had a fabulous love affair that summer. And she so goes, here we go. The, bridge, year before, the bridges of Madison County revisited. Yes, yes. yes, except, yeah. And she goes, you know, I didn't. Uh, it was the summer before I met your grandfather. Yes. And she goes, he was so handsome. And... 
She goes, he's still handsome. I found him on Facebook the other day. He's, he's a beautiful man. And the granddaughter is looking at her grandmother like, who is this woman? Because yeah, she's never yeah, met yes, this version of her grandma. Yes, yes. And I look at him, I go, man, everybody needs a Fernando. Right. Right. And yeah. everybody bursts out laughing. And I'm like, dude, these are the stories that people need to hear. We don't need to see grandma like clutching her purse at the zoo. Right. right? We need to yes. know that grandma was real. And so I was like, I got to get this stuff on TV. And so I went out and I pitched the show to everybody. And, um, and PBS quickly became the place I knew that I could tell the real stories. They yes. don't care as much about selling commercials. They care about, about history. So it's more about sharing the stories and less about the physical value. And it's just been a joy to film. I think we're politically and uh, culturally, we need some positive stories. Uh, it's, it's heavy these days. And so I it really is. was yeah. determined. I was really just, det- and I'm not picking either side, right. but there's sides. There's sides right now. And we got to go back to not having sides. And I really believe this is a show, as cheesy as that sounds, this is a show that can help do that. We all got grandparents. We yeah, all I got parents. And we all you, loved you, our grandparents. You're plugging you know? into humanity and what it means to be to be human. Yeah. It's, it's certainly welcomed. Matt Paxton, thank you very much. We look forward to looking for Legacy List, which will appear on PBS stations around the country. That would be absolutely stupendous. Uh, thank you for your assistance and encouragement to people like Elizabeth Nelson uh, of Children of Hoarders. And thank you for your kindness to, uh, to me for being on the show. We've so enjoyed you, and I just want to wish you continued blessings, and thank you. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for featuring Hoarding, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Take care. God bless. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Watching America, Elizabeth Nelson. She is the spokesperson for a very unique group, Children of Hoarders. I had a childhood friend called Danny, and I loved Danny. But one was never able to get beyond his front door, and many of the children in the neighborhood did not understand. If you knocked at his door, he would open the door only a few inches. Sometimes one wasn't met with the most desirable of odors, and there was pain in Danny's eyes, and often fear at the doorbell being rung. People associated with children of hoarders are very much familiar, unfortunately, with this experience themselves. So, Elizabeth Nelson, let me start, if I may, by asking you how you became involved with this organization and what in your own life preceded the interest. Well, I I grew up fairly privileged. We were upper middle class. We didn't have any needs that were unmet, except for this big secret that we were living with, which is that we didn't want anyone to see our house and what it looked like and how it was maintained. Um, I grew up, moved out of the house, and tried not to think about the situation too terribly much. It wasn't something that was very comfortable for me. But as my father got older and he was struggling with mobility issues, my family really had to confront the dysfunction and how it was impacting his life. And so for me, the trigger point that I got me involved with other people was when um, I went home for a Thanksgiving holiday and my father no longer had access to a bathroom in the house and he was forced to use like portable urinals, like are used in hospitals Mm -hmm. for people who are bedridden. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
my mother had reasoned it out that he was using a bathroom upstairs in the morning, and then during the day, he was downstairs using this this implement and didn't need to have access to an actual bathroom. And I couldn't believe, I mean, my, my siblings and I were all home that Thanksgiving. We all saw this situation and I couldn't believe that we were just sort of accepting it as normal. And I, I came home and I started frantically Googling for what could possibly be wrong with my mother. And it was hard. It was hard to pinpoint. Um, I was thinking, well, you know, she shops a lot. Is she a compulsive shopper? Um, that didn't quite fit because the symptoms of that seem to drive people into debt. Um, she was always careful and cautious about not acquiring things in a way that felt financially irresponsible. Um, it, it took a lot of internet searching for me to find the word hoarding and discover what that was. And so I think that was 2005. Had there been any signs of this behavior prior to 2005? I mean, did you grow up experiencing? Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, this had been a problem when I was growing up. As a child, my siblings and I all knew that we didn't invite people over, that if when, we were, when the situation was forced, like a, a grandparent was coming to visit, uh, like a very rare situation that a grandparent was coming to visit, it was weeks and weeks of panic and stuffing things in the basement. Like we had grown up feeling the shame of the house being dysfunctional, but it wasn't until my father had mobility issues and it became non-functional for him that it really, it was something that I felt like we needed to confront. And it does get, the thing to know about this illness is it really does get worse. So like I look at pictures of my childhood and I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't horrible. And then 15 years later, it, it, it was disastrous. It was ridiculous. Like, how would anyone live there? When you were about 10, how did your house look? I mean, we've all gone through perhaps a, a day or two where the dishes haven't been taken care of because we've been entertaining people and they've piled up a bit or something like that. But what did your home actually look like, say, circa around the time you were 10 or 9 or 11? So... I, I grew up in a fairly large house where we had a full basement that was not a living space. Um, when I was very little, the basement was large and clear enough that I could ride a big wheel and loops around it. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time I was 10, that basement was stuffed. It was probably knee deep in stuff that had been shifted from other parts of the house. The main living space of the house, there were news, stacks of newspapers everywhere. And if you can imagine a room that would have seating for five people. Maybe it has a couch and a couple of chairs. A room like that in my childhood home would have space for one person to sit down. Um, the kitchen table was constantly covered with stuff. It was not a table you'd eat at. We had a dining room and a dining room table that was covered with stuff except for space for, you know, we had shoved the stuff over for four people to sit, like surrounded with stuff on it. Um, general maintenance of the house was difficult because of all the stuff. So for instance, the kitchen floor, you know, now that I have my own house, I understand that in your kitchen, the kitchen floor needs to be mopped frequent, fairly frequently because it gets dirty from people walking through it and things getting spilled. It, when I was a child, my kitchen floor probably didn't get mopped except once every six months because there were like bags of things that were on the perimeter of the room, there were things on the floor all of the time. Um, is part of this problem 
to some extent, uh, initially at least, uh, I, I know that there's elements of control and, and wanting to have control and the feel of loss of control if people move items. But initially, is it just a matter of perhaps more benignly does indecision, the inability to make a decision as to what to do with something, an item or items? I, I think it's hard to describe that as benign or separate that out from control because every time... And my, now my mother is the one who struggles with this. Every time my mother was resistant to making a decision, she was adamantly preventing anyone else from making a decision. Uh, so yes. while it's true, while it's true that a lot of the accumulation is just not wanting to look at it, not wanting to decide about it now, and not dealing with it, um, it it's I, I can't separate out the control elements because I never. I never saw, I can't imagine a situation where my mother would say, I don't want to deal with that. If you want to deal with it, you can. You know, there was never, the responsibility could never be assumed by anyone else. When somebody suffers from this disorder, the dysfunction that the family is dealing with is that no one else in the family can take ownership of it as their house. I mean, I since I've connected with other people who lived with this, I've heard different versions of how people have functioned in homes like this. Sometimes someone is able to draw a boundary and say, this is my room. Like you're not putting stuff in my room. But Mm -hmm. I think more typically the hoarder is really controlling every space because they run out of space. I mean, my room was not my own when I was a child. At one point, my mother even moved into my room. (laughs) I mean, there really are not a lot of boundaries. As far as you know, during their courtship, when you when your father was wooing and and uh, dating your 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 mum, did he see any signs, telltale signs, exhibiting that there might be a future problem, or were your maternal grandparents neat and orderly people? My mother's living circumstances when she was dating my father were that she was like a resident advisor in a college, so I don't think my father got a window into what it would look like if she was responsible for her own living space, like any meaningful living space, like she didn't have an apartment or anything. And um, the truth is that her illness, something that a lot of people don't understand about this illness is it is very closely tied to perfectionism. And my mother is like a lot of hoarders in that she was a high achieving person in her, in her youth, in her career, in academics. And that was something that she and my father had in common. And I think some of the quirkiness or funny aspects of my mother's personality just sort of dovetailed nicely with her skills. She is, she's a musician. So she was obsessive about things like practicing and obsessiveness sort of reinforces developing a skill like playing the piano. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, I think it's, it's possible that my parents really didn't know each other long enough to have a sense of how compatible they would be. They had very similar resumes. They had both gone to Yale for graduate school Mm. and they had mutual friends who saw, well, you're a really smart person and you're a really smart person. Maybe you two would get along. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, Well, it, 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 it's a question that I was going to ask you, you anticipated it. um, And that is a whole issue of perfectionism. Where from the outside, in a superficial dis- assessment, people would say, well, how can this possibly be related to perfectionism when everything's in disarray? But the perfectionism manifests as ultimate control, correct? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I think the other thing um, that I've heard from another, um, a number of other people who share my experience is sometimes a person is able to hold this together um, before the indecision takes over and they are overwhelmed. So mm-hmm. for instance, my eldest sibling has very, very early memories of my mother obsessively arranging magazines and being determined that be, they be in a very specific line on a table. And um, he remembers taking the mag as a very little kid, taking these magazines off the table and making like a path that he, that seems like a fun thing to do. And he, he remembers my mother just flying into a rage about this, um, you know, an in, inappropriate reaction, but even before she lived in a house that ended up overwhelming her, she, there were, there were this, there was the same theme of control that was motivating her. And so she's in her early marriage to my father, they were living in a, a small house. And my understanding is that in those early few years, things were sort of under control. And then once she moved to a larger house, things flew out of control. Like she was quickly overwhelmed. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Elizabeth Nelson. She has started and is a spokesperson for an organization called Children of Hoarders, COH, and she has been detailing her experience from about the age of 10 onwards. I'd like to, Elizabeth, talk about the impact it had on you regarding friends. Um, one of the things that uh, persons in your predicament growing up in households deal with regularly is the, the fear of the doorbell ringing or the fear of somebody coming by and wanting uh, innocently admittance. Doorbell dread, some people call it. Absolutely. How did you Absolutely. handle it? Um, I, I first became aware of just how embarrassed I should be when I was about eight. We had a, an immediate neighbor who was more of a trusted friend and their house was not tidy, but it also wasn't dysfunctional because mm-hmm. they, the family would come together every couple of months and say, look, we're all going to pitch in and work together and straighten this up. They weren't dealing with a mental disorder. Um, so we had this, this trusted neighbor who came in to feed our cat when we went on a vacation. She was a friend of mine. She was about eight or nine. And she told me that while we were gone, she had brought another child from the neighborhood into our house to help feed the cat. And she said that this other little girl had been just appalled and just horrified mm-hmm. at how messy the house was. Mm-hmm. So that was a turning point for me. And, um, and then I think as I got older, I just, I just realized that all of it's, it's surprisingly easy to negotiate keeping people out of your house. You know, you pick them up or they pick you up and you are ready on the front porch. Um, I remember a conversation I had in high school with a boy who was, he was basically flirting with me and he teased me that he was going to just show up at my house one day. And <laughs> I'm sure that he had no idea the the shock and horror that yes. I was feeling inside my head to hear him say that um, I, I, for all, all of the different reasons, you know, I, I mean, like different reasons that anyone would, would suspect. It's like, well, no, absolutely, you're not going to just show up at my house. No one just shows up at my house, never. Elizabeth, before the start of this show, I debated with myself whether or not I would disclose this, but I will disclose it. Uh, my father was an alcoholic and um, a non-functioning alcoholic, and it was abusive to my mother, so I, I grew up in domestic chaos 
uh, particularly my formative early years. And as a child, uh, because they couldn't pay the electricity in the bill in the north of England, I lived in a home that didn't have electricity because it was shut off. Uh, there was a coin system that you used to use, believe it or not, in Britain, where you'd put money in and you'd have electricity for a given period of time. But my father would drink that money away. And I also lived in a home, consequently, that had no light. So we sometimes would burn candles in the house and the house was a mess. I would get invited to visit a boy next door. And I would, even at an early age of five, and four and five and six, I knew, no pun intended, that there was light years difference between my home and his. And when you come from a dysfunctional background like that, when you visit other people, you spend an inordinate amount of energy trying to act normal in the presence of others because you know that your circumstance isn't. Did you experience the stress of trying to act normal when visiting other friends? Definitely. Definitely. And I think I I, I think there are two there are two ways of experiencing hoarding as a family member, or maybe there's certainly more than two. There's a whole range of experience, but I, I think there are sort of extremes. Um, I, I experienced what it was like to have this contradiction in who I was, where I, I knew that my family was educated. I knew that my father had a good job. I knew that we were smart and accomplished people and we had a, like a lot of advantage and it didn't make sense how we were living. And so I, I was trying to make sense of why we had this contradiction. Hmm. Um, and I think there are others who grew up in circumstances on an opposite extreme where the hoarding is sort of confirming and validating a lot of other things that are wrong. In our support group online, when we exchange stories, I've heard stories from people who said that I assumed that the hoarding was because we were poor. I thought that what we were living with was normal because this is just because we're poor. And so they were sort of normalizing the dysfunction in a way that was different than what I was living. I mean, I, I see... I see how I was able to, when I was growing up, cling to the good things, the the, the um, positive and remarkable things about my parents and about my family and trying to hide the things that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of my childhood feeling very envious of my peers, feeling like, I, I'm 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 living something that's just different from everybody else, and it just makes you feel very strange, and it's isolating. So we come around now to you in your adulthood. You come home for I think you said Thanksgiving, and with your siblings, and Dad is not incontinent, but can't make it to the bathroom, and he has various plastic containers around the house. How did you broach the subject with your mother? Uh, and with your father, and is there some kind of psychological dissonance where they don't connect that there's an issue here when you when you face them and say, look, something's got to give? Well, one of the things that I explain to people is that it seems kind of crazy that my father could accept these conditions, but it's a little bit like the expression about boiling the frog. Um, I think all of 
all of the compromises in his living circumstances happened so gradually that, you know, pointing this out or saying, you know, mom, why would you pile those things in front of the bathroom? Like, can we just move this so dad can get to the bathroom? Yes. Um, she was just like, no, no, he's fine. Like, this is fine. And when I talked to my dad about it, he's like, oh, your mom likes to hang her clothes up there. Just don't worry about it. I'm fine. Um, and so I, I think there was less conversation with them because I realized this is a non-starter for me. My focus was on first understanding what exactly were we dealing with and educating my siblings about this and persuading them that we needed to intervene. Elizabeth, let me just uh, ask you a common issue that may occur for children of, of hoarders. There are professionals that tell people, oh, you know, unless the individual is in a danger to themselves or, or others, you really shouldn't interfere, that people should be allowed their own privacy and that you shouldn't intervene and let people, by gum, by gosh, by golly, live the way they want to live. But if you love these people, you don't want them to continue to subsist in an environment that is uh, potentially definitely injurious. I mean, just let's talk about potential fire hazards. I mean, did your parents have working smoke detectors? I mean, you've got magazines piled up everywhere. You've got cardboard boxes. You've got uh, chaotic clothing thrown about here, hither and thither. Did you go to bed at night worrying if the, the place was going to go down in a blaze? I, um, I periodically Google my hometown and flyer to see if it's happened yet. I, it's, it's legitimate. It's a legitimate concern. And I think that I don't know how many people hoard who literally have no loved one who have a vested interest in their, the way they're living. I don't know how you tell a child that they should, t- they should feel no responsibility for this. That's mm. really hard. Yes. There is all kinds of messaging that children take responsibility to be supportive when parents age. And I, I just think that it's, that's a very big ask. And I, and my family is a pretty big example of, of how a lot of families, there are, you know, there are innocent bystanders. It got to the point where my dad was physically unable to manage in that house and also dependent on my mother. And so, to the extent that my mother could not confront her illness, could not deal with the house. My father was in no position to push back and assert himself or insist on on anything, really. Um, I know that there, it, was, it, it, it was really sad to see my fa- how my father was living and some of the conversations that I had with him where I would identify an obstacle and, like, you know, my father, my mother had this this bench, uh, an old piano bench that she had since replaced, but she couldn't get rid of the old one. And mm-hmm. she had placed it in front. She had placed it in front of a doorway, which made it harder for my dad to get through that doorway. And then she piled it with newspapers that were advertisements. So they were for sales that were long past, um, purely like useless, useless material. Like there's no value in looking at a sale that has been, happened five years ago. And I remember a conversation I had with my dad where I said, you know, the, what's on this this bench is useless. I can throw this away. This is from J.C. Penney 10 years ago. I can just throw this away and then we can move the bench and you can walk through this doorway more easily. And my father was was like so upset saying, no, no, do not touch those things. Your mother will be so angry. 
And I, I said, well, what is she using these for? I, I, it doesn't matter. She wants to look at the pictures. I don't know. I don't care. Just don't do it because she'll be so upset. Um, Let me ask you about the idea of intervention with your siblings. Do you, you have an older sibling you've referenced, I think a sister. Do you have any other uh, siblings? I have three older siblings. Okay. Was there ever a discussion, and, you know, obviously amongst siblings that can very often domestically be disunity, but was there ever a conversation at least, you know, uh, tied on the phone with you all saying, look, we have to do something on the 17th of next month on the weekend or whatever date we're going to go over to mom, we're going to get her out of the house and we're just going to go for it. And if she's mad with us to blazes with it, we just have to do this for, for simple reasons of health and danger. Would there yeah, be that spirit of cooperation? And did you try it? And if so, what happened? We did exactly that. I was able to coordinate with all of my siblings. Um, shortly after I discovered what hoarding was, I, I printed out pages and pages of information about hoarding symptoms. We all understood that, that mom's ill. There is not a an easy fix to just explain to her that she needs to clean the house. And we were all on board and we did exactly that. And it took, we spent a week. How um, did you get her out of the house for a week or did you, was she still there? We did. We did. My sister, my sister hosted her, my sister hosted her and my brothers and I worked on the house. Did she have it any suspicion a, or did you just be able to no, pull this off like an operation or military operation? We, it was like an operation. My father did not know. My father did not know. My mother did not know. Um, and it was, it was really pivotal. It was astonishing to take control of the situation. I think all three of us were astonished by what we found. There were things that we didn't expect. Such as? Um, I had always told myself that the house was clean, that the house was just a bunch of newspapers and boxes. And ultimately, um, we were, we were, um, somewhat superior to, you know, those really crazy people who have those, those messes that are just disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um, we, when we started digging, we found that my mother had been storing bird seed on a carpeted floor. She had managed to spill the bird seed and then didn't effectively clean it up. And then the cat had gotten confused and had started using that as a litter box. Mm. And mice had gotten in, and I mean, I was going to ask about roaches and rodents. It was, yeah. I mean, there was evidence of mice. There was, I mean, I would not have imagined that things were so far out of control that my and piled up so high that my mother would that that could have happened. I mean, we were we were just shocked. Mm. Um, I think this is a good moment to stop and point out that um, a lot of families. A lot of families cannot coordinate in this way. A lot of families have coordinated in this way. And it, the professional advice is that you do not do these things. I talked to a lot of doctors prior to this plan, and I explained it's dire. This is what we have to do. And I was advised that I needed to be prepared to take my mother to an emergency room, that she was likely to have a breakdown. Um, I think everybody's different. I mean, we talked, my siblings and I talked about what's her likely reaction. Um uh, the the wisdom in 2006 and I think the ongoing advice now is this idea that the hoarder is so fragile and vulnerable and there's no telling what kind of attachment exists between the hoarder and the stuff and no one should dare attempt anything like this. 
All right, so let me just ask you parenthetically, with the understanding that it's not recommended that one does this, but you did do it. And so to complete the narrative, if you don't mind, Elizabeth, tell us what happened. So what is the reaction when you open the door? Are you with bated breath, you know, just all of you saying, is she going to freak out? What's going to happen? What did she literally do when she came into the house? There are two reactions to tell, I think, because my father was the most important person in the equation. He was the reason we did it. Ah. And so when the both of them came up, my words to my dad were, Dad, we did this for you. We fixed the house for you. And my mom was just stunned. Um, we sat her down and we reassured her that this was a problem that a lot of other people suffered with, that it was much too much for her to have tackled herself. And we gave her a book about it and we basically told her, like, look, we were tried to be very strategic. We we organized and stored as much as we could in the basement. We we threw away as much of the stuff that we were fairly certain that you would not mind. Um, we tried to show her there were a handful of things that we had done that she was complimentary about. Um, probably spaces that were had previously mostly been filled with my dad's stuff. <laughs> like there was a coat closet that was mostly his old boots and old hats. And like, she was perfectly comfortable with us having organized that and eliminated a lot of stuff. Um, over the course of time, she became angrier and angrier and started obsessively generating lists of things that were missing and that she was angry about. And I mean, we, I, proactively and I mean, anticipating this moment, we had, what had I planned? I planned, um, an appointment with a counselor. I was going to bring, I was going to go with her to a counselor and we were going to show photos and we were going to have a discussion about it. The counselor ended up canceling. It was very poor timing. I had to get back. I, my kids were real little at the time. I was away from my toddler for a solid week. I had never been away from him before, but I gave up a week, um, to do this. And um, anyway, so we couldn't meet with the counselor together, but she maintained appointments with this counselor for a while after it. She walks into the house. You've explained to dad, dad, we did this for you. It's kind of a preemptive um, maneuver not to have his ire just exaggeratedly right, over the we top. Right, because we didn't know how he would react either. How he did, was grateful, though. He was grateful. Okay, so is there a, was there a point of acceptance on your mother's part and perhaps even concealed relief or is that wishful thinking on no, my part? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We, we did everything we could to try to reassure her that this was not an attack, that this was an attempt to be helpful, mm. that this was not something that she should feel guilty about. Mm -hmm. um, she does not admit to it like ever, but there is clearly a lot of shame attached to the person who suffers with this. Mm -hmm. I, we knew that she was embarrassed and ashamed of this, um, but she was highly resentful of our interference. She spent a lot of time writing up lists of things that had been, she described them as stolen from her. Mm -hmm. When trust from her vantage point was broken, were you able to win it back? And if so, how? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think... I think anyone who grows up in a family understands that 
you have multiple siblings and everybody sort of has a role to play mm-hmm. as it turns out, uh, or has an identity maybe in the family structure. Mm-hmm. My identity and my family structure is the scapegoat. And so I had legitimately organized this. So However, you, you I, were the lightning I had, rod. I was absolutely the lightning rod. And if you were to talk to my mother now, she would tell you that I did that entirely by myself. I, she has obliterated from her mind the fact that both of my brothers actively participated in that. As far as she is concerned, I am the only person who is to blame for that. She has rationalized it as there is one villain in the story and that villain is me. Many moons later, many perhaps years later, after having done this, when you look back, was it a success or was it a failure in retrospect? I think it was a success in terms of changing the narrative of that house. I read a story online from another child of a hoarder who described a similar incident in his family, you know, pitching it and cleaning up and just addressing the situation Mm -hmm. years before I did it. He describes his family as having done this, you know, 25 years ago. And um, I was struck by his perspective on it. And I think I share it too. It doesn't matter that the mess came back. It doesn't matter that my mother was angry. I felt like it was important for me to have that experience of taking back a little bit of control. Yes. I don't know if that makes any sense. I mean, it I, every does. time that this it is, does. It every makes... time this is framed, um, when every time the concept of intervention is discussed with hoarding, it feels like all we talk about is it's not going to be a solution. It's not going to help the hoarder. Ultimately, it's all going to come back because that's not appropriate treatment. And I don't know that anyone ever acknowledges what it means for the person who was burdened with that, mm, yes. didn't create it, and was probably blamed for it. Your circumstances is just as valid as, as that of your mother and, and father's. You have, in effect, exposed the problem, which can be liberating to talk about an issue. But are your mother and dad aware of this and do they feel exposed and how have they responded uh, as a result? My father is now deceased, but he was proud of me when he understood that I was speaking publicly about this. I talked to him about how I was speaking to classes, um, social work classes at the university in my town. I was interviewed by people. I was talking about this. I was trying to raise awareness and my dad was really proud of me. My mom once said that, and this was been years ago, I think now she understands differently, but in the early days, she said that I was like that Al Gore who had just invented global warming. (laughs) My mother's (laughs) politics are very strange. Um, Yeah, she thought that I was just full of nonsense and I was talking a lot of nonsense and I had just invented something that didn't really exist. Now I know that she realizes that this is an actual problem. But in some ways, the some ways the information about the illness, the the information that is shared by experts, is validating my mother's argument that you should not have touched my stuff. This is mine to control. This is not your business. You have no right. And that is very troubling to me. And I don't. I, it concerns me a lot that families are hearing this message so much. What should be the takeaway for people hearing this program? 
I think the takeaway should be that this disorder impacts a whole family. And when we talk about treatment or we talk about the nature of the disorder, too often our conversation is focused on one person. The nature of the disorder, the, the characteristics of it, the resistance to treatment, the lack of insight probably means that the person we're focused on is the least receptive to getting help. The people in this equation that are most receptive to help and needing it are probably the impacted family members. And so I think my takeaway for people is just to consider who is impacted in this situation, who can we, who can we actually help? Because right now, I don't think enough people are thinking about what kind of help and support would be useful to the family members. It truly has been my honor to have Elizabeth Nelson speak so personally, openly, candidly about her experience of being a child of, of a hoarder. She is the spokesperson for an organization, nonprofit called Children of Hoarders. Elizabeth, I want to thank you because even though people may be struggling and continue to struggle with this with various persons they love or care about in their lives, they feel lonely. But hearing your voice today ensured that at least for an hour they didn't. And that in itself is a great gift. And I want to thank you. Thank you for having me on. Bless you. Take care. Hey, this is Dr. Alan Campbell, host and creator of Watching America. You know, from time to time, they give me copy to read, and I'm ignoring it. Here it is. Uh, because I'm speaking from my heart. You guys are fantastic. You keep this show going. You give us wonderful feedback, and we simply couldn't do it without you. So for all of us here at Watching America, let me just say earnestly and honestly, thank you for your support. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. <laughs>